It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Turning out of arguments on Monday over the football coach who lost his job at a public high school outside Seattle after repeatedly taking a knee alongside his players on the 50-yard line after games. The coach, Joe Kennedy, said the school district violated his constitutional rights by punishing his private religious expression. But the district argued that Kennedy's prayers were becoming a community spectacle and left players feeling pressured to join. Using hypotheticals, the justices struggled to find the proper line to draw to balance the First Amendment rights of teachers and coaches with the school's need to protect students. Here are the Chief Justice and Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh. What if the the activity uh, on the field did not consist of this kneeling down briefly, but something more uh, uh, extensive, standing up on the 50-yard line, arms outstretched, uh, engaging in audible prayer? Let's say he says the Our Father with arms outstretched, and it starts causing a lot of havoc in the stands. You know, coach uh, does the sign of the cross right before the game. Uh, is that, could a school fire the coach for the sign of the cross right before the game? Some of the justices, like Kavanaugh and Elena Kagan, expressed concern that players might feel coerced to participate in the prayer. If you look at our prayer cases, the idea of why the school can discipline him is that that puts a kind of undue pressure a kind of coercion on students to participate in religious activities when they may not wish to, when their religion is different or when they have no religion. hear the suspicion by parents that the reason Johnny's starting and you're not is he was part of the prayer uh, circle. My guest is Richard Garnett, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. Tell us the issue here, Rick. So what's at issue here in the Kennedy case is whether an order that was given to Coach Kennedy that he had to refrain from any religious expression or activity in view of students, whether that order was consistent with his First Amendment rights. At the time the order was given, the record is pretty clear that the school district, Bremerton, was of the view that they had to require Coach Kennedy to stop engaging in this publicly visible prayer 
because the Establishment Clause required it. That is, the district thought that the separation of church and state required the district to prevent the coach from engaging in this public prayer. Now, Coach Kennedy says, on the other hand, you're misunderstanding the separation of church and state, and you're violating my First Amendment rights to engage in religious expression. I'm a citizen like anybody else. I'm allowed to pray in public if I want to. And so at the oral arguments, it was interesting because I think one of the challenges for the justices was that the litigation position of the uh, school district seems to have changed. So at the early stages of this case, their position was, look, we had to require Coach Kennedy to stop praying. Otherwise, people would have gotten the wrong idea that we were sponsoring the prayer, and that, that would have been an Establishment Clause violation. And in the Supreme Court yesterday during arguments, though, the district's position seems to have changed to, well, the reason we had to tell Coach Kennedy to stop this is that he was coercing his players into participating in a prayer. And, and the Constitution obviously doesn't permit government officials to coerce anybody to participate in religious activities. So I think part of the oral arguments was the justices trying to sort out what exactly the district's position is and then to evaluate the competing arguments. Was this about the coach offering a silent prayer on the field after the games, or was it about the coach offering a prayer surrounded by players after the game? It's a great question, and the answer is it's not entirely clear, and the justices spent a lot of the time at the oral argument trying to dig into the facts. So what appears to be the case is that over time, the coach's prayer and the kind of surrounding context for the prayer changed, and also the district's stance changed. The lawyer for the coach was urging the justices to focus on the order that was given to the coach, that that's what's relevant here. And the order said that he wasn't permitted to engage in public religious expression if it was viewable by students. In a sense, what the lawyer for Coach Kennedy is suggesting is the justices need to focus on that order and not on what might have happened later as media attention grew and as some people from the stands or other players from other teams started joining and so on. The lawyer for the school district wanted to suggest to the justices that they should consider not just the order that was given to the coach, but they should consider all of the you know reactions that these third parties had to the controversy as it developed. It's a common problem in some of these cases involving religious expression and religious symbols is that the facts are fluid and they kind of evolve. And it'll be interesting to see how the justices pin down what it is they're actually evaluating. But as I saw it, and um, I think a majority of the justices saw it as well, it appeared that the district, again, had shifted its position from what it originally relied on when it disciplined Coach Kennedy to what it's arguing now in the court. How would focusing on that order help the coach's case? This is an employment discrimination case. And what Coach Kennedy is challenging is the fact that there was an order given to him that he not pray in view of his students and that that order, because he violated it, caused his adverse employment action. Now, that order, if you think about it, is incredibly broad. I mean, it would suggest that, and this came up at oral argument, you know, if in the lunchroom a high school teacher bowed her head and made the sign of the cross instead of grace, or one of the examples that came up was a teacher came to school with ashes on Ash Wednesday, that that would all be in violation of the order. And so if the court is focusing just on the order that was given to Kennedy and the adverse employment action that followed, I think a lot of this other atmospherics is kind of not relevant. And what about some of the justices' concerns that the players might feel pressured to participate in the coach's prayer? There actually isn't any controversy, really, in First Amendment law 
about the basic proposition that government officials are not allowed to force people to engage in religious action. So everybody agrees that you can't do that. The problem is, in this case, in Coach Kennedy's case, that wasn't the reason that he was disciplined. The reason he was disciplined had to do with this so-called endorsement test. And the district's position was, we have to censor Coach Kennedy because if we don't, people will perceive somehow that the district is endorsing religion. So the district's position, its argument at the beginning, was the Establishment Clause requires us to limit this expression. Now, the district's position has, again, evolved over time. They relied more on the coercion theory in the Supreme Court. But there really isn't evidence that any of the players, in fact, were coerced to engage in any religious activity. At least there was no, there was no evidence of this that was relied on by the district when they disciplined Coach Kennedy. So I think this is a little bit of a muddying of the waters because it isn't a controversial position. The conservatives and the liberals agree that the First Amendment doesn't permit coercion to participate in religious activity. That, that's kind of a core violation of the First Amendment. But what is at issue, and what I think some of the more conservative justices were emphasizing in oral argument, is there's this theory kicking around for the last 40 years called the endorsement test, which is that, simplifying a bit, that the First Amendment is violated if the government, even indirectly, is perceived by third parties as, quote-unquote, endorsing religion. And that's the theory that the district relied on when they disciplined Coach Kennedy. And that's the theory that, and I should disclose, I, I filed a brief in the case arguing that the court should reject this test. This is not what the Establishment Clause means. So my hope is that the justices will state clearly and will provide guidance to the lower courts and school district officials around the country that the Establishment Clause, which is obviously crucially important for religious freedom, it doesn't give judges the authority to try to interpret every government event and decide whether or not in some abstract way it endorses religion. Almost every analyst seems to agree that the justices are going to rule for the coach. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. I mean, I guess I'd say I think some analysts I've seen have said, well, you know, we know the court's going to rule for the coach because of, you know, red versus blue or Republican versus Democrat. I think that's wrong. I think they're going to rule for the coach because the law pretty clearly protects the right of people to engage in religious expression in the public square. And the law doesn't require governments to censor private religious speech out of some vague fear of endorsement. The law does guarantee that there can't be any coercion by government to participate in prayer, but that didn't happen here. Could the justices issue a narrow ruling or a broad ruling? Yeah, so a more broad ruling, and the one that I confess I'd like to see, would involve some doctrinal cleanup. And it would involve the justices having to say, look, for 40 years, we've had this endorsement test kind of lurking in the background of our of our uh, rules regarding the First Amendment. And we're just here to tell you that that's not the rule anymore. So lower courts, you don't have to worry about that. That, that would be a broader ruling. And I think that would be efficient. And that would help that would really help school officials. So they didn't have to worry about being sued when they permit free speech, and they could dedicate their resources to better things. A more narrow ruling might be just to say, look, our doctrine is the same as it always was, but on these facts, there was no coercion, there was no endorsement, and therefore Coach Kennedy's First Amendment rights were violated when he was disciplined. That would be the more narrow ruling. And some analysts have called this one of the most consequential cases in recent years, testing the separation of church and state. Do you see it that way? No. 
unless the court takes the broader approach that I suggested and cleans up its doctrine, as I hope it will. But I think a lot of the analysts who are referring to it that way are claiming, in my view incorrectly, that a win for the coach would mean that effectively you could just go back to having state-sponsored school prayer in public schools, and that's false. Even if the coach wins, it wouldn't call into question the 60-year-old rulings that you can't have official government-composed prayers in public school as part of the curriculum. Those rulings from the 60s, I'm confident, are not going anywhere. Thanks so much, Rick. That's Professor Richard Garnett of Notre Dame Law School. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The oral argument we have just concluded is the last the court will hear with Justice Breyer on the bench. For 28 years, this has been his arena for remarks profound and moving questions challenging and insightful, and hypotheticals downright silly. (laughs) This sitting alone has brought us radioactive muskrats and John the Tiger Man. As the last oral argument of the term concluded on Wednesday, Chief Justice John Roberts gave a touching tribute to Justice Stephen Breyer, who's retiring after nearly three decades on the bench. For now, we leave the courtroom with deep appreciation for the privilege of sharing this bench with him. During his last argument, out of more than 2,000, Justice Breyer did not present any of those fantastical hypotheticals he's known for. This term involving everything from four-foot-long cigars smoked through hookahs to arbitrating with a spider. But there was some classic Breyer. And they don't prosecute the particular crimes. When they take place in Indian country, they're prosecuted in federal court. Now, am I right or wrong? I'm not an expert, and you are more of one. 
So am I right or wrong about that? Joining me is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. Carl, what was Justice Breyer's greatest impact on the court? Well, I think it was a whole mix of different ideas, but I think his collegiality and his willingness to probe the issues in all cases that came before the court and the quality of his questioning during oral argument were all important parts of his legacy. But of course, he was an expert in administrative law and regulation as a faculty member at Harvard and on the First Circuit, and just an astute observer of the Constitution and the branches of government and how it was helpful for the court to be able to probe separation of powers issues and all of the insights that he had about understanding American government and history. We were expecting some of his fantastical hypotheticals <laughs> in his last oral argument. We didn't hear those, but we did hear him ask the lawyers, as he's done so many times, am I right or wrong? <laughs> no other justice frames questions that way, you know, sort of challenging. Exactly. And sometimes the lawyers would engage and other times they wouldn't, but he had a reputation for asking probing questions. And that was valuable. Also has a great sense of humor, dry wit, and a number of other attributes that made him a great justice. But his collegiality and his willingness and capacity for trying to find practical solutions to very difficult issues was critical and very important to the court for a long period of time. So let's turn now to future judges. The White House announced the first batch of planned judicial nominations in more than two months, and it featured several candidates with prosecutorial experience and law firm partners. Those are the types of roles that are often found on courts. But Biden had made this push to nominate lawyers with public defender and civil rights background. Do you think he's trying to nominate people that will get through faster or just balancing out his nominations? Well, I think both. I mean, I think he was, and we saw just yesterday another batch uh, of five that uh, looked somewhat more uh, like his earlier ones, people who had been federal public defenders. So I think we'll see a mix, uh, but mostly, I think, uh, concerned about the midterms and uh, basically trying to uh, uh, seat as many uh, as possible uh, appellate court and district court uh, judges in those vacancies as can do before the midterm election and probably after the midterm election in a lame duck session. Uh, and so, and I think the administration is making the assumption that uh, the Democrats may lose the majority in the Senate in November and so. Uh, want to uh, be as successful as they can in that period of time. And there are many in the pipeline. Uh, Many are coming forward from the committee and are on the floor now. And I think uh, they will move as expeditiously as they can. They had a hearing again yesterday for five historic nominees. All five were women who are people of color and uh, one was a lawyer doing civil rights work for her entire career. Another was the first Bangladeshi nominee for district court and the first female Muslim who would sit on a district court. 
and others who had been engaged in federal public defender or related types of work. And so we're seeing a pivot back to the lower federal courts, uh, circuit and district, and moving everything as fast as possible in the Judiciary Committee. I expect a hearing every two weeks, and I think Durbin is committed to that and moving people to votes and then onto the floor. Thanks, Carl. That's Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. The question before the Supreme Court was whether the Biden administration can revoke the Trump Remain in Mexico program, which has forced tens of thousands of asylum seekers to stay south of the border while their applications are processed. Some of the justices seem to struggle with the conflict between the law and the facts. The fact is that Congress has never allocated enough money to detain the number of asylum seekers that show up at the border. Here's Chief Justice John Roberts. You're in a position where the facts have sort of overtaken the law. Um, But in that situation, what are we supposed to do? It's still our job to say what the law is. And if we say what the law is and you tell us we can't do anything about it, Where do you think that leaves us? And then there was the question of the courts interfering with foreign policy and forcing the administration to negotiate with Mexico. Here's Justice Elena Kagan. What do you mean it doesn't require negotiation with the foreign power? What are we supposed to do, just drive truckloads of people into Mexico and leave them without negotiating with Mexico? My guest is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. I want to start with the general question, which is, This is a Trump-era policy. Administrations change and policies change. Why can't the Biden administration institute its own policy? Well, because there's two separate arguments that are being made by the state of Texas, and we'll find out if they're correct or not. The first is that the statute itself actually requires the Biden administration to use this Remain in Mexico policy in a situation where there's not enough detention space to actually hold every single person coming across the border while their case is decided. That's the argument that the state of Texas is making. That's their first argument. And so if the Biden administration is actually violating a statute, then That's a very simple argument for a state of Texas to make and to prevail on. And then their second argument is, well, even if they didn't violate the statute and they have discretion for how to interpret the statute, their ending of the migration protocols in this situation is arbitrary and capricious because they're not providing sufficiently good enough reasons for ending the Migration Protection Protocol, or what's known as Remain in Mexico. This is a 1996 immigration law. Have presidents since 1996 followed this law? So the 1996 statute that creates the ability to move people into Mexico while their asylum case is pending is a May statute. That's a very big thing that the Biden administration was really focusing on during this argument is that the statute says that the administration may do this as opposed to the administration shall do this. And what has happened is that the only administration that really actually did this in any kind of measure was the Trump administration. And so they started doing this near the end of the Trump administration after a long set
scenario that they had with Mexico where they threatened them over tariffs and other things unless Mexico allowed this to occur. And so then asylum seekers were housed in Mexico, although even during the Trump administration, not in large numbers, because at the end of the day, there was litigation going on, and there really still wasn't the capacity to do this in large numbers. And so one of the interesting things that came up in Dee's argument was the admission by everybody, by the Department of Justice, by the state of Texas, and by many of the justices that even the Trump administration would be violating the Remain in Mexico statute if it was to be interpreted the way Texas wanted it, which would be to require every person who's not detained to be placed into this program in Mexico. It was clear that the Trump administration wasn't doing anything like that. And Leon, what about courts interfering in foreign policy? That's a no-no, isn't it? This is where the justices said, look, we've for hundreds of years said we're not going to get involved in these foreign policy questions. Why do you want us getting involved in this now? And I think this has been the weakest part of this case, is how much of this program depends on Mexico and how much the judges will have to intervene in foreign policy in order to make sure that an injunction like this is maintained. And so I think this is what makes them most uncomfortable. But I also think the justices are equally uncomfortable with taking this tool off the table and what they're hearing then with regard to Title 42 coming down the pike and saying, well, we don't want to potentially be contributory factor to a large surge at the border. And so it's not exactly clear how this is going to come out. Tell us what the major concern of the justices seemed to be. You know, There were a few themes. The most interesting one, sort of as an initial matter, was whether the court had jurisdiction to even consider the claim, which is, I think, something that the courts had been skipping in prior cases, but I think the issue has become one where these cases keep coming over and over and over and over again to the court. And so there's a statute called 8 U.S.C. Section 1252, Uh, paragraph F1, which says, if you're seeking injunctive relief of any aspect of the immigration system, you're not, the court has no jurisdiction to do that. All they can do is address case-by-case questions in the issues of a specific person that's going through the system, but they can't do these large injunctive relief cases. And so what's interesting is courts have gotten around that in the past by saying, well, this is an injunctive relief, this is a declaratory relief, And so I don't know. I don't know if they're going to revisit this now or if they're just going to yet again skip the step and say we have jurisdiction. But then, so after you skip that step, but it was interesting that a lot of the conservative justices were the ones asking about jurisdiction because I think a lot of the liberal justices probably don't want to decide the case on those grounds because that could easily come back to haunt them later in a future administration where other kinds of states want to sue. And so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see, but I don't think there will be five votes on the jurisdictional question, although I do think there will be some interesting, perhaps, uh, either dissents or concurrences that mention this jurisdictional issue. So that's number one. The second issue that was that came up as a result of this is, well, what does the statute say? Does the statute require the administration to move people into Mexico when there's not detention space? And that's what the state of Texas is saying. They're saying because the statute says that you shall detain anybody coming into the United States who's seeking asylum, that when you don't detain people who are coming into the United States who are seeking asylum, presumably because there's not sufficient detention capacity, 
then the may in the Migration Protection Protocol Statute transforms into a shall. It's the next thing that you have to do, as opposed to remaining as a may. It doesn't, it doesn't become an option. It becomes the option, the thing that you have to do in that situation. And so the way they read the statute is there's only two choices. You don't have to detain anybody. You could keep everybody in Mexico. But if you want to let people in, that's fine, but you have to detain them. And if you don't detain them, that's when you go into Mexico. That's the way they read the statute. The Biden administration reads it as, no, this is one tool which we can either use or not use in this situation. And so we are using it, but we are using it with very limited uh, characteristics and very, very limited spheres, and we don't want to use it at all because there are other tools that we can use, such as bonds and alternatives to detention that, that we believe will, you know, do the same, have the same techniques, have the same success as remain in Mexico. So then Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, got uh, concerned about that explanation and said he did not find that particularly compelling and that the remain in Mexico policy seemed to be a very sound policy, that there would be no reason that wasn't arbitrary or capricious to actually try to discontinue that program, and that the Biden administration didn't have the authority to be letting in all of these individuals into the United States who are not detained in order to wait for their asylum claim. And so then there was a lot of chatter amongst the justices about that issue. Do they have the authority? What is the authority to let in people? And there seemed to be some consensus, although it's hard to say, amongst some number of the justices that, look, if there's not sufficient detention capacity, because the Congress does say if you're asking for asylum at the border, you should be detained while that case is going on. But if there isn't sufficient detention capacity, that the next situation would be that what has to happen as a matter of administering the system is you release the person into the United States and that the statutory scheme understands that, as does the history of what's gone on in the United States for many decades now. And so there's that issue. And then it goes into finally the argument about, well, what about foreign policy? Are courts getting way too much into foreign policy here? Because what happens if the, you know, the Remain in Mexico injunction continues, but Mexico and the United States can't continue. What are the courts to do? And here is where Texas had sort of the least of the argument, where they were saying, well, the court could lift the injunction then if it wasn't satisfied that the U.S. was negotiating in, in it was negotiating in good faith and wasn't making it with Mexico, wasn't making any significant headway. And this is where the justices said, look, we've for hundreds of years said we're not going to get involved in these foreign policy questions. Why do you want us getting involved in this now? And I think this has been the weakest part of this case, is how much of this program depends on Mexico and how much the judges will have to intervene in foreign policy in order to make sure that an injunction like this is maintained. And so I think that's the biggest problem. I think this is what makes them most uncomfortable. But I also think the justices are equally uncomfortable with taking this tool off the table and what they're hearing then with regard to Title 42 coming down the pike and saying, well, we don't want to potentially be a contributory factor to a large surge at the border. 
And so it's not exactly clear how this is going to come out. I do think there are five justices that are sympathetic to enough different arguments to allow the Remain in Mexico policy to be ended, but I don't know if they will coalesce around a specific answer, and so it will be very hard to predict, I think, where this case is going. You, you think there are five that are sympathetic to having the policy ended? Well, not the policy ended. So I think there's two or three justices that would say there's no jurisdiction, which is interesting. And so the case would end from there, meaning that there was no jurisdiction to challenge the ending of the Remain in Mexico policy. And I think then the three liberal justices think, look, this can be ended. It's not arbitrary and capricious. The memo was perfectly reasonable and the story. And so the question is, will those six lead to a judgment that ends up ruling for the Biden administration, or will they not be able to agree on such a judgment, and will they end up going somewhere else that actually upholds this Remain in Mexico policy? That would be very interesting to see. I don't exactly have a good feel based on the argument how this will turn out. We'll know in two months, but uh, I think it's going to be a very, very close call. I think there are for sure three justices who say... This is a terrible policy that's being lifted. It should be kept in place. The Biden administration is acting arbitrarily and capriciously. I think you have, on that front, you have Thomas, you have uh, you have uh, Alito, and you have Gorsuch in that situation. Then we don't know where Roberts, Kavanaugh, and, and Justice Coney Barrett are going to be in this situation. They're, they seem to be more of the swing votes here. And then we know we have uh, Breyer... We have Sotomayor, we have Kagan, who are sort of in the camp of, look, they can lift the memo. There was a memo made by Trump. There's a memo made by Biden. This memo is perfectly reasonable. They have the discretion to lift the the policy. And so where those three middle justices go is what I think is going to matter here. Can you read anything into the fact that the Supreme Court rejected the Biden administration's request to block the lower court's decision? I mean, you would think ordinarily that that would be the end-all, be-all, and that it's very clear you're going to end up back with the same 6-3 decision that maintains the decision to block the Biden administration from lifting the Migration Protection Protocols. But what you could sense in the argument was these justices personally grappling with a lot of the arguments in a way that made it clear that perhaps they hadn't really been as informed as to the details of both the statutes and the policies placed on the border, such that there's certainly reason to believe that the decision could change. They didn't seem to be fully aware of everything going on at this argument. And so from that, I I could see the position changing. But of course, I think if you were a person who was prognosticating this and trying to stay on the safe side, you would say, well, of course, it's going to stay at the same six to three as it was before. I think that would be logical and the conventional wisdom. But I just think that there was enough new information and insight from this from this hearing that it's not likely that at least one vote won't change. I can see at least one vote changing. The question is whether there will be two. That's an interesting question. Whose vote do you see changing? Anyone I in particular? Know. Oh, okay. I think Roberts for sure could change. And then the question is, is there one between Coney Barrett or Kavanaugh or maybe even Justice Thomas saying there's no jurisdiction and so he just votes for the judgment because he was the one bringing up that there's no jurisdiction. Maybe he can somehow come into the five in that way 
and that somehow that makes it enough. I don't know. We'll have to see. This brings up several questions. Does this mean that the United States either has to detain people who are seeking asylum or send them back to Mexico? That There's no letting them into the country under this. Well, that would be the argument that the state of Texas is making. The problem is, I think everybody at the hearing said there's no way to have those be the only two options because Mexico is not permitting, in terms of numbers, every single person to be forced to remain in Mexico that can't be detained. Mexico is trying to keep those numbers much smaller and is also mandating that anybody waiting in Mexico has to have their case heard for in at least six or sorry at the most six months and so you can't do that if you have hundreds of thousands of people in the system you're not going to be able to hear all of those folks case in six months which then leads to okay what would happen next if texas then says well you're not enforcing this injunction do you does the court hold biden administration people in contempt and i think this is where the courts got a bit incredulous which was, how are you going to hold people in contempt for the fact that Mexico isn't allowing you to enforce the Migration Protection Protocol in this manner, which means either detain people or keep them in Mexico. There will always be some number that has to come to the United States because either Mexico won't take them back or we don't have sufficient detention capacity in the United States. And so the question is, what will that number be? What will be an acceptable version of that number? And I think the court has to grapple with, does it want to continue litigating that? Because that's what will happen, is, is if that number gets too high, there will be litigation about contempt of court and the government violating the injunction. Or does it just want to say, look, let's go back to the old system, however flawed it may be, where this is a tool that can be used, but it is not a tool that courts will require administrations to you. Thanks so much, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio. 